Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. It's not every day that you find someone who is as well-versed in technology as they are in law, but Rebecca Reddick pulls it off just about every day. As the head of law and policy at Polygon, her job is to do what many of us can't. She delves into the tech, law, and politics of crypto to excavate legal and policy strategies for thorny issues in digital assets. So when she and former FinCEN official Mike Mosier came out with their new article, Genuine DeFi as Critical Infrastructure, I just had to have her on to the show. It's an article that breaks down financial laws, delves into the specifics of Treasury Department agencies, and suggests a new system for engaging while regulating. It's the kind of paper that we law professors love to noodle over. So sit back and enjoy a conversation with Rebecca about what ensuring financial integrity should mean in the world of decentralized finance. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining FinTech Beat. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Super excited to be here. Excellent. Then let's start from a 10,000 foot level. There are lots of different rules relating to financial crime, like, say, the Bank Secrecy Act. So can you offer us a bit of a guide through some of the most important ones that are relevant to DeFi? Great question. And that's a good place to start because the paper, which came out uh, January 29th and is called Genuine DeFi is Critical Infrastructure, a Conceptual Framework for Combating Illicit Finance in Decentralized Finance, um, starts with an overview of what we call the financial integrity regime in the United States. And we break it into two parts. One, as you said, is the Bank Secrecy Act, and the other is with respect to sanctions. The Bank Secrecy Act uh, came about in the 1970s, uh, and my co-author, Mike Mosier, is actually great at doing this whole, uh, who spent a long time at the Treasury Department in a number of different roles, but he's always great at talking about where the Bank Secrecy Act came from and why. But the the Bank Secrecy Act was passed in 1970, uh, really to get at uh, various banks, including Swiss banks, um, who did not have any transparency into who their customers were. And to basically, uh, it started out as sort of a record keeping regime, just so that people would have information when potential illicit activity occurred uh, through banks. Um, and then it, and then there was a long history of regulation that I guess buttressed and built out what we think of as the BSA or our anti-money laundering AML regime in the United States today. So um, it was amended in 1986 with the Money Laundering Control Act, um, which criminalized money laundering and would not allow bankers to be complicit in that. 1992 with the Anunzio-Wiley Act um, to really build out these big, reasonably designed AML programs that basically also had record keeping, but also reporting when there was suspected uh, bad activity again in the 90s. And then really, uh, there was the 2001 Patriot Act, which really built out a lot around the BSA. And then in 2020, there was the Anti-Money Laundering Act, which people have said, if really fully implemented, would give FinCEN the broadest authority of anything that's been out there to date. So that's the BSA. But the important thing about the BSA is it it attaches to intermediaries and to a special set of intermediaries called financial institutions. 
which are things like banks, but also broker dealers, um, special types of commodities dealers, whether it be introducing brokers and the like, uh, casinos, uh, and even back in 1970, telegraph providers, because they were really key to moving money for people. So any money transmitters uh, is really how we think of who the Bank Secrecy Act uh, should apply to. The second part of the financial integrity regime is about um, sanctions, uh, which is something that comes from the U.S. government uh, to impose economic and trade sanctions on various bad actors. The Office of Foreign Asset Control designates individuals, entities, jurisdictions to restrict them to restrict U.S. persons from engaging in business or providing services or otherwise engaging in economic activities with them. And so it's really this comprehensive, and sanctions, by the way, does not only apply to these special financial institutions or intermediaries. Um, it applies to anybody who is really servicing U.S. customers, obviously people who have employees in the United States, but it's really meant to uh, protect U.S. economic and national security interests. So that's where we start there. But the thing that makes it hard to think about the financial integrity regime from where it is today in DeFi is, in theory, there are no intermediaries there. So number one, a plus, I don't think I've actually ever seen someone describe the entire uh, sort of <laughs> national security apparatus for the BSA in less than three minutes. So that is a, a very impressive uh, feat in and of itself. And uh, you even happen to throw in a little bit of OFAC uh, to boot. So, you know, you know, I guess some of the, the, the key nuggets to get there is, okay, um, under the BSA, you have certain kinds of record keeping um, and and reporting requirements that are sort of, again, as you mentioned, sort of corralling banks uh, into this sort of um, position of, 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 of helping to find and sniff out sort of wrongdoers or, or threats to national security. And then you have this sanctions regime uh, with OFAC giving this very helpful addition of, of noting that it's a, a bit of a broader net and it can involve not just sort of uh, requirements to do things, to report information, but also just prohibitions against really like uh, what kind of business associations and and relationships that, that 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 a party should have. All right, great. So I am going to get into the intermediaries question, especially you know when you get into something like crypto, and and, and I suppose that that's one reason why uh, um, cryptocurrency enthusiasts, specialists, and uh, technologists, you know, have have tended to sort of tussle a bit with uh, the expectations of the BSA and, and and sanctions regimes. So so sure, let's let's take that dive into the intermediary question, and, and maybe you can can let us know: Is this just an operational challenge? So so as you said, you have this Bank Secrecy Act, and it's identifying certain kinds of parties, you know, banks and the like, financial, you know, this large category of financial institutions, of which banks are one, as well as any number of other kinds of entities like money transmitters? Is it, is it just the reach of the law or, or is it um, how uh, it, it is, it, it actually is uh, operationalized in, in practice? Like wh where do you see the biggest sore points? And then we'll, we'll jump a little bit deeper into, into your paper. Great, great questions. So I wouldn't say across all of crypto, you can't have a AML as we think of it today. There are obviously 
super important intermediaries and known intermediaries in crypto who are registered as categories of financial institutions. So crypto exchanges like Coinbase and Kraken, they're uh, money services businesses and they have MTL licenses and they have to comply with the BSA. So they have very rigorous and robust AML programs that look very much like what we were talking about at the beginning of this. Uh, And other intermediaries as well, not just exchanges, but there are definitely actors in the crypto world who fall under the definition of financial institution. I think when you get to permissionless software or applications that are built on permissionless software that also are permissionless uh, and run autonomously, the question is, well, what do we do there? Sanctions, you know, people have come up with all sorts of workarounds and things like that. But I don't think it's impossible to achieve the goals of our financial integrity regime in some in decentralized systems. But I don't think it looks exactly the same. So, you know, to break down what we really want to do with financial integrity, it's um, documentation, detection, and deterrence slash prevention of illicit activity. It doesn't look the same. And I think the real problem is crypto has been saying for a long time, there are technical solutions. It's going to look different. And I think a lot, and you've probably heard this even more than I have, but we've heard a lot from both the uh, administrative and legislative branches saying, well, what? What is that? Right? It can't just be like wallet monitoring or on-chain tracing. There has to be something better that can at least uh, bring down the amount of illicit activity that we see and hear about. Um, And look, I think there are some loud voices that have made the uh, amount of illicit activity seem bigger than it actually is. But we also had to, and and just, you know, to get, before we get into the paper, the impetus of this was to say, no, there really are technical solutions here. uh, And let's at least start a real conversation about what that looks like. Well, your paper definitely has uh, created a little bit of a buzz here, you know, and, and starting with the terminology, you know, just like, you know, you're both trying to sort of break apart the system and then you're, you're introducing your own sort of uh, kickoff, as, as you mentioned, to, to a larger conversation. And, and you're, you're introducing this idea of, of sort of genuine DeFi and critical infrastructure, you know, which is which are, neither one of those terms are, are necessarily associated uh, or the first things that come probably to mind over at FinCEN. But you're, you're sort of um, trying to break a little bit of conceptual ground. And to sort of rethink some of the initial starting points. So maybe I'll, I'll give you, well, if you can summarize the entire BSA in three minutes, I'm sure that you can summarize <laughs> so, you know, some of the key aspects of yeah. uh, your, your paper. But, but let's just um, maybe start with you know, the nodal points of the framework that you're trying to introduce to help reorient how we think about DeFi and illicit finance activity and, and, and the regulation of the space writ large. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So I think we've heard, well, we've heard two things and the paper really tries to speak to it. One, you've heard a lot for people saying BSA doesn't apply here, so throw it away. And we knew that that would never really fly if we wanted people to listen to us. So we did do this history of the financial integrity regime because we wanted to say, well, at least what are the goals here? Because if we're going to do a conceptual framework that doesn't fit precisely in it, we at least want to have something that laid out the goals. So that's why we started with that. Then we've also heard a ton from regulators, um, both in writing, but also I'm sure in private meetings, like DeFi isn't decentralized. There are obviously systems here that have real intermediaries and people aren't complying. So we did, I'm not an academic like you, but I tried to do something like a lit review before we started writing to see what was out there. Thank you. I know I'm getting yeah, no, no, no one just sees why I just did, but I just, I just gave her the thumbs up because I was, I was very impressed with the paper and I thought it was very 
uh, rigorous. Now, so approaching course, academic. <laughs> exactly. Well, 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 everybody on the podcast just fell asleep as soon as I said that. So that's why I'm going to give you the the <laughs> gesture without you know people actually knowing that I did that. But yes, the literature. Um, I feel like I'm getting. I'm going to. I'm going to leave this podcast with a good grade, which I'm <laughs> You're getting, no, seriously. It was, it was well done. All right. But, but yes. Um, okay. But on that note, so there's a paper that came out um, from three academics uh, called On DeFi and On-Chain CeFi. And that really laid out a great framework for thinking about the systems that have intermediaries, even if they're on-chain and smart contract based, and the systems that aren't. Um, that are really permissionless, really autonomous, that don't have intermediaries. And I can't take credit for the genuine DeFi term. That is really, that's something that comes from that article. That's Fabian Schar and Katrin Schuler uh, and Anne-Sophie Klutz, who've really done great academic work on DeFi and put out a bunch of different papers. And the other thing they call um, with the intermediary systems is on-chain CeFi. But what we did is we used two parts of that framework. The first saying, well, how would you even identify which is on-chain CFI? And we gave a definition of control um, to determine if there is what we call a system control person, right? How do you know if there's an intermediary in there? And we really based it in, and we did not want to sort of start over or recreate the wheel uh, in much of what we were doing because we want um, both policymakers and, and regulators to realize they have a lot of these tools. They just have to look for them in places that they may not have been looking for them before. So we built out this idea of control from which emanated from the 2019 FinCEN guidance on uh, convertible virtual currencies. Uh, but we made it broader. And we said, that's the first step. So is there a system control person? If yes, then the second step is, are they engaged in activity that a, a financial institution would be engaged in? And if so, then there is regulation. Now, sometimes there may be a system control person and they're not subject to the BSA, right? Um, depending on what they're doing. Holding an emergency multi-sig key probably does make you a system control person, but does not make you a financial institution, right? Because you're using it only in the case of emergency. So that's the first part of the framework. And I will say where we've gotten um, really good feedback on how broad our definition of control is from the industry side. It's very broad. And so people are concerned that it is on the industry side that it's too broad. Um, but I think you have to acknowledge that there are lots of different ways of control. And that's why there's a second part to the test to say, not all control means you regulate as a financial institution. Then when you get to the genuine DeFi part, that's this software that is running underlying a system that allows people to engage in financial transactions. And we call it critical infrastructure because there is something um, that was brought about uh, back in the late 1990s um, that created a critical infrastructure framework. So there is now under DHS's purview, an organization called the Cybersecurity and Information Security Agency, or CISA, and they oversee 16 critical sectors like transportation, communications, healthcare, farming, and things like that. And they look both at, and this is really important given where our world is going today, and you're probably well, well equipped to talk about this, but we're moving into a very digital, right, and technological world. So CISA oversees a lot of the what we now think of as technological infrastructure underlying these um, 
different sectors, as well as some physical infrastructure as well. Uh, so like the trains need to be running on tracks, right? But they also need all of their software to be communicating with each other so we don't have train crashes and all the trains are running on time. So obviously financial services is one of the 16 categories. And there is an office within Treasury called the Office of Cybersecurity and Critical Infrastructure Protection, or OSIP. Mike is not here to make fun of me, but when we first started researching this and looking through this, I thought it was OXIP, just for... Um, <laughs> um, um, but it is OSIP, and they already oversee critical infrastructure underlying the financial services sector. Now, look, when it's critical infrastructure underlying a bank and there is a threat, right? Like you could have Lazarus coming in to um, attack a bank. Uh, they have a lot of this information that's fed to them through other government agencies. And they can maybe call the CISO of you know, Bank of America if that's where the threat's coming in. But they might also call AWS. So, so, so are these agencies, in, in your view, would they have uh, sort of supervisory authority, or is it that they themselves are sort of connectors, and 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 their role is is sort of you know almost surveillance kind of systems, you know, red flagging issues? Like, what do you see as their role in your in your framework? Great question. So, CISA and OSIP are not regulators. They are, as you said, they're like connector agencies. Uh, there was actually a hearing maybe a few years ago, and the where Congress was pushing to have CISA become a regulator. And they said, no, we really don't want to do it because the reason we're so effective is because people are not worried about enforcement and they actually will do the things we say because we're really collaborative. And Mike tells this story every time we talk about OSIP because he used to be um, an advisor when he was in Treasury uh, and worked a lot with OSIP. And he will say, everybody... When you call them and say like, hey, we have threat information um, or we have new trends and typologies we're seeing uh, and we want to call everyone together, people jump at the chance. Like nobody's afraid to go in and talk to OSIP. Everybody shows up at the designated time because you're giving them information that will make things run better. So and look, the stuff that CISA and OSIP do are things that we've actually heard uh, people in the industry talk about a lot with DeFi. They put out cyber standards, right? And they work with NIST on all of those things. They also do a lot of information sharing. There's a really important, yes. Yeah, you know what I what I think really, which is hilarious. You you, you just gave me the prof, the the very professorial yes, Chris. Yes. I well, wish you could see us because I'm like <laughs> yes, professor. Well, yes. As a matter of fact, I did have this thought, which is it, you know the the idea of sort of putting some of the responsibilities in a connector is is interesting because you know our agencies don't always talk to each other uh, just in terms of how they're they're set up and you know just as a as a kind of a thought exercise if you can figure out a way to kind of beef up and that is once one one question is you know you know how do you make sure that they have the sufficient expertise to kind of do what what you're looking to do? But once you get them up and running, you know that 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 could be a very useful means of kind of raising the skill set, awareness, knowledge, understanding, you know, throughout throughout the government, um, which 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 would help to coordinate and 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 uh, perhaps lead to some more uh, efficient s solutions. Uh, it, when when you when you do think about that the, the the question of financial services, and again, really introducing to that conversation, which is already going 
on right now. You know, the, this idea of, hey, there's DeFi and there, there's there's blockchain-based work. You know, is there already, are there already some streams uh, going on in, 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 uh, in those agencies? Or do you get the sense that this is something that, you know, industry would have to work proactively on to, to kind of help set up to make sure that there is um, that level of expertise? So the answer is yes to both, but uh, yes is with a caveat to the second part. So I would say Treasury, it, and there are various different departments within Treasury, but are pretty sophisticated when it comes to blockchain and DeFi. I think obviously there is still a learning curve and it's very steep, but I'll say it for myself too, right? I'm still, the, the technology is moving at such a rapid clip that I am still learning all the time. Um, but I think that you need, the thing about OSIP2 in the traditional financial world is that there is a very strong public-private partnership through something called the FSISAC, um, the Information Sharing and Advisory Committee, something like that. Um, but the FSISAC is super, super, it has something like 4,000 members. They're not all financial institutions, and they all come together to share information, and they work with OSIP. Like OSIP sort of oversees them, but without, as you said, having supervisory authority. And they work really closely with OSIP. They also have their own podcast because I, when I was doing research and looking at the FSISAC. Um, so FSISAC is a super developed organization. There is, to your point, the indus- what the industry needs to do and has tried to start doing is have a crypto ISAC. But th- that really needs to be supercharged. And that's the other reason why I think OSIP would be such a great catalyst here is because I think they will supercharge a lot of the efforts that have been worked on in the space or are being worked on in this space right now that will, to your point, elevate everybody to the same level, um, at least when it comes to illicit finance in this space. All right. So, so I guess then we'll, we'll return, you know, back to your, to your sort of core framework, right? So, so you're, you're going about and, and you're proposing this, this, this definition of, 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 of a kind of control person. Interesting because like in and of itself, you have the the issue of what is control, and, and clearly you're hearing back from other colleagues on, on how expansive that notion should be. You know, not to be too securities law-ishy, but like, you know, how centralized is the word, you know, person? You know, is it like a, a centralized managerial group? You know, people would sort of just figure like, well, you know, what's that? But but I think that's a good, you know, a pretty good, uh, a very good um, conceptual start. And then, you know, this this critical infrastructure move that you're making. But 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 what does that then sort of mean then in in practice when you get to sort of how then some of the operators, some of the control persons, again, would be regulated? Now, obviously, if you're not involved in financial services, then to your point, they don't fall sort of in the in the bucket of 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 uh, this particular rule. And in that way, you're trying to provide, I think, a kind of parallel cogency to BSA, right? And BSA doesn't apply to, to, to things where you don't have financial services. So you're kind of trying to create a, a parallel system there. Well, wh- when you do fall into dealing in financial services, wh- what do you see then as the, you know, the hallmarks of a regulatory regime? I mean, we, we see that you would have these sort of networkers providing like really coordination and, uh, sort of surveillance of some sort, like what exactly then do you do you think about for for those actors who are engaged in financial services? Yeah. So I and the Schuler paper that I talked about earlier says, you know, look, if they're if it's on chain CFI, 
it's much more likely to be regulated in some way. And we really wanted to stick very narrowly to the illicit finance question, because I think the how are we more broadly regulated question, uh, you know, probably takes up much more than 45 pages, um, as you yourself know. But what I'll say is, I'm going to answer the corollary question, which is, if you have a system control person who's not a financial institution, can you still achieve financial integrity goals? And the answer is yes. And that's where the third part of our framework comes in, which is we propose something, a new category called critical communications transmitters. They are not financial institutions and they will not be subject to the BSA under this proposal. But what they are really trying to do is meet the documentation, detection, and deterrence, actually prevention goals um, in a really serious way. And this is where the, hey, there are tech solutions point really comes in. So the critical communication, the way we define it, and it was really, really intentional, is a person. And person is the way the BSA defines person. So like a natural person, an entity, things like that. But a person providing a service necessary to the flow of communicating users' information about a financial transaction from a system that to be settled on a blockchain that transmits a material portion of such communications and is offered for profit or being run as a business. So we really looked at, look, DeFi has not only been running on its own. And so people have developed all sorts of different parts of the tech stack, um, including some where people are making a profit or running a business. And so we really looked at where I'm not saying all businesses need to be regulated uh, or regulated in a particular way, but we really looked at the way the entire tech stack came together and where you could meet, where you could be effective. Because, right, we've seen a lot of people trying to apply the BSA to these systems, and it looks very square peg, round hole. And as lots of people have said, well, that's not even going to prevent, you know, Lazarus from actually engaging in hacks. So we thought like, well, where will it? And if you have a material portion of communications going through a critical communications transmitter, and people have said sort of, what is the, what's what's a good example of that? Um, there's something called an, what we call the RPC node as a service um, entity. RPC stands for remote procedure call. It is literally just a computer language that allows networks to speak to each other. Remote procedure call as a language has been around since the 1970s as well. So it and the BSA are in tandem, I guess. Um, But people don't host, you could host your own RPC node. They're small. They could sit in your office. You'd never notice them. But people don't do that. Just like most people don't actually host their own validator nodes. Uh, And so the service has sprung up where uh, tons of um, these nodes are being hosted as a business and they're going through. Uh, They do get paid in a number of different ways, not from the users, but we'll put that aside, but they're making money. It's for profit. And so what we proposed is to put various different uh, financial integrity pieces to it, but would require them to basically monitor, to leverage the transparency of blockchains, to look at wallets and for wallets above a certain level of risk threshold. And we'd probably have to engage in notice common and rulemaking to define how we do risks. But um, a lot of these blockchain analytics companies are already giving wallet scores. Um, But above, let's say a seven, I'm just making that up. Then the remote procedure call service provider, the CCT does two things. One, it will block all of those transactions from these very high-risk wallets off. 
and will not pass them through down to the base layer. So they never even get to validators, right? You don't need to do KYC at the validator level because these, these bad actors would never, and it's not just Lazarus, by the way, it's also like people engaging in hacks. So you'd really be deterring, but also preventing these um, illicit transactions from getting down to the base layer. And then you, there's um, a tech program that would auto-generate reports, not SARS, because that's too robust in terms of the information, but uh, that would go immediately to FinCEN. And people have said, just from a, you know, constructive criticism we've received, like, well, you know, the FBI or FinCEN or other law enforcement could see all this information. It's like, yeah, but they couldn't see it in real time, right? This would be so auto-generated that you'd say, this really high-risk wallet tried to do this transaction. Here's the hash. Maybe they have an IP address. Not all RPC providers have it. So you might not. And so you'd get information really quickly uh, to be able to do a lot of the tracing and tracking that law enforcement has been able to do. That is really cool, you know, and and you know one of the sort of consistent themes and and you know my own research has been you know how can you build on top of an infrastructure that is really kind of made uh, for communications and and to kind of build off of it in, in ways to address uh, some of the risks uh, that 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 you may be seeing. As I said, you know, from the very start, this this paper, it's not always the, the case that a paper with a literature review actually ends up causing a little bit of a stir and, and, and getting people to really think about it. But what are the steps t- in, in your view, because you are also someone who's very familiar with Washington, what are the kinds of steps that you think need to be taken to kind of put this idea into action? Great question. So I think you have to talk to the various people involved, Treasury, you know, OSIP, um, does this work? Does it make sense? To your point, do you have the expertise? What do you need from a private sector perspective? I think there is a big appetite for an ISAC to really come together. Uh, and OSIP would be very receptive to something that robust that was coming from, an, you know, a private sector perspective. Um, but then you also have to do the work Yes, we've all been trying to educate for years and years, but we're past education now, right? We're in a place where people are really saying, what's our practical implementation? But we have to do the education on why this works and why you don't do the BSA at all different layers of the tech stack and where the benefit to this overcomes what people may see as the comfort of the BSA. So I've been doing, Mike and I have both been doing that in various different ways. And he just testified in front of Congress a little bit ago and talked a lot about that. So I think, you know, those perspectives come through. And I think making sure you know, yeah, uh, what what the priorities are for uh, the Hill at the moment. And obviously, illicit finance is one of them. So for, for final question, you know, we, we do have plenty of international listeners so over in the UK and Australia and in Asia. I mean, any, any lessons here that, that you think could be useful, you know, from a cross-border standpoint? Yeah, that's great because it's where we've really started thinking about it uh, as well, um, right? FATF has really been focused on this. And obviously, the MLR in the EU is coming to fruition. So I think some of it just goes to going to talk about these tech solutions. Everyone's been saying tech solutions all over the world. And so regardless of what, you know, okay, fine, there's no BSA in the EU or in Japan or wherever. um, But there are really serious illicit finance concerns. And so I think talking about why this framework actually meets goals more than um, using 
sort of old systems uh, or old regulations that worked for the old systems uh, is really important to do. And to that end, we have a two-page summary. And so if people don't want to read the 45 pages um, and deal with a lit review footnote or anything, then there's a two-page summary that's out there as well. Well, well, it's quite ironic because for law professors, 45 pages is actually pretty short. I know. <laughs> you know I, know. I, I think, you know, and it, it was it really well organized. So, you know, you could just jump exactly, you know, I noticed, uh, you know, to, to some of the implementation issues. Rebecca Reddick, congratulations to you and Mike Mosier on a great paper. And, and I'm sure it's going to really uh, bend the policy dial. And thank you as well for joining Fintech Beat. Thank you for having me. This was super fun. Solving serious policy challenges requires penmanship. If you really want to have an idea that will last, you have to put it on paper, work it through, and push yourself to make sure that your assumptions are clearer and your hunches reasonable. And in their paper, Rebecca and Mike have done just that and are passing the ball to regulators and industry for their perspective. Now, in a season where people are more apt to scream than to read, people may be surprised to hear that ideas like these will be noticed. The key instead will be how they are engaged. Now, it's my hunch that policy increasingly has to be done in a spirit of collaboration, not because we're always right, but because no one has a monopoly on good or bad ideas. So let this paper, this nerdy brainwork, be a testament to the fact that there are serious people out there and that enabling them and digging into their ideas should be among policymakers' top priority. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.